thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to the Primal Alternative Podcast, featuring actionable tips from real people with real stories about real food. This show is presented by Primal Health Coach Helen Marshall, who empowers other paleo-loving, thermomix-owning mums to start a sustainable, faff-free business of their own with the Primalista License. The Primalista License brings primal alternatives to the foods we love to our communities, making primal living more doable with less falling off the wagon. The Primalista License is available at www.primalalternative.com. And now, introducing your host, Helen Marshall. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Neil McLagan from Crossing for a Cause. In March 2018, Neil is going to bike ride from Perth to Sydney. Not only is this an incredible journey with lots of risk as well as major physical exertion, he's actually going to be doing it with type 1 diabetes. His mission is to fundraise, is to raise awareness for type 1 diabetes for a start and also fundraise for an essential cause, the Telethon Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre. I had the absolute pleasure of seeing Neil at a dinner hosted by um, Pete Evans at Heirloom last month, where Neil was a guest of Pete's and was unexpectedly asked to stand up in front of a full restaurant of people and tell everyone about his Crossing for a Cause mission. Um, I was so impressed with what he said and so interested to find out more about his story that I invited him on the podcast today. So welcome to the show, Neil. Hi there. How are you? Really good. Really good. Thank you for um, joining us today. Now, you've got an amazing story, but I would like you to take us right to the beginning um, when you were 14 and when you were diagnosed with an underactive thyroid. Yeah, well, basically, um, I yeah was uh, diagnosed with uh, underactive thyroid at fourteen. Um, yeah, I think it started because my mum noticed uh, I was pretty tired all the time and uh, yeah, pretty lethargic. But um, yeah, that was the uh, the first sort of onset of any kind of autoimmune. Um, it runs in my family. My mum has um, has underactive thyroid. Um, and yeah, it was pretty well an assumption that I'd uh, I'd sort of uh, develop that uh, from from my mum. So uh, yeah, that's where it started. And, so, um, and then so and, from there, you you also now have the type one diabetes as well as celiac disease and and full blown Hashimoto's. So can you tell us about how that sort of chain chain reaction occurred? Yeah, well, basically, uh, it wasn't until I was about 17 um, that I started to get sort of other more severe symptoms. Um, I'd lost a lot of weight, uh, again, really, really fatigued. Uh, I started to lose my eyesight. Um, I had all of these symptoms and I wondered what was kind of uh, going on. Um, And, yeah, it wasn't until I... uh, Went to the doctor and they ran a blood test and uh, they sent me home that day and the, uh, the the lab phoned up at midnight that uh, that night to check that I was okay because my uh, blood sugar was six times higher than normal. 
Um, so, yeah, the assumption was straight, straight back to the doctor the next day and, uh, yeah, type 1 diabetes um, was the diagnosis. So that was at 17. Um, and then it was, yeah, probably I, I, I sort of uh, was a good, uh, well, that would be another 13 years or so before uh, I started to develop symptoms of um of, of celiac, but uh, that that was a more uh, sort of slow progression. Everything I, uh, you know, I was I was eating, I was having to analyse because it was upsetting my stomach quite severely. Um, yeah, and I just the the symptoms worsened to the point I uh, got another blood test, and there we are. The, uh, the the celiac diagnosis came up as well. So uh, yeah, they're quite they're quite common in that 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 group of three. Is that um, but that's. Yeah, it's it, it's quite common. Depending on uh, obviously, there's a various uh, number of autoimmune um, type, uh, well, types basically, um, and and they're associated with different uh, diseases such as Crohn's, um, Addison's disease. The, the, there's a whole number of them, but um, yeah, the diabetes, the uh, celiac, and the Hashimoto's um, hyperthyroidism is quite common. So was there like a major event, um, I know that I've heard um, other stories where, you know, one day you just had a really bad cold and then that triggered some kind of um, gene that, that started the type 1 diabetes. Was there any like major life event like that for you, Neil, or, or did it just come um, For me, well, it was, a, it was a pretty interesting circumstance at the time. Um, that I found out because uh, I was actually working when I was a, as a late teen at McDonald's, as you do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I was um, I was involved in a hold-up. Our store was actually held up very early in the morning. Um, a guy had sort of entered the store uh, with a weapon on hand and uh, before I know it, everyone had ran out uh, every, every which way. But um, I was pretty unwell at the time I had um, yeah as I mentioned before lost a lot of my vision um, I was you know very lethargic very tired I think if you like I was on some kind of cruise control or autopilot so I was yeah. just uh, working out the back in the kitchen and um, didn't realize this guy was standing right next to me oh my goodness um, trying to yeah and he was trying to direct me obviously uh, in the direction of the safe or where all the uh, where all the registers were but um, eventually I kind of figured out what was going on um, he got his money and left uh, and from that point the uh, the police came in to interview me now I couldn't recognize him and the guy was right in front of me mm. I couldn't tell them the color of his uh, of his clothing um, anything about him because I just hit it was, it was like looking through a shower screen basically that was what my vision was like at the time wow. um, which is obviously caused by the extremely high blood sugar levels um, so yeah I got sent to the doctors for a checkup and my mum had been sort of uh, you know nagging at me for a while knowing I wasn't too well at the time and uh, that's when they ran the full screen of blood tests and uh picked up diabetes was the uh, diagnosis but it was a pretty uh yeah interesting circumstances in which to find out <laughs> horrific yeah what an absolutely horrific stressful situation to be mm. wow neil that's yeah and how did they but i mean in terms of in, sorry, in terms of oh sorry there 
Now, in terms of life events, I think, um, you know, the only major thing I can think of that I ever had is, you know, is maybe a, there's no direct link. I mean, they obviously don't know what causes um, autoimmune other than it being genetic. I have my own theories, but there's no evidence to support that. But, I mean, I had glandular fever when I was 10. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, well, glandular fever, one of them, but... I actually think, ironically, that the the progression of my autoimmune, and I'm referring to Mark Hyman's book um, or Mark Hyman's work. There's another book called The Autoimmune Fix. I forget the author's name, but he's associated with Mark Hyman. In that book, he describes gut permeability um, or a, uh, I guess, an intolerance or an allergy to certain foods, proteins, dairy, that kind of thing. I was diagnosed with celiac at 30 years old, or 35, sorry. Um, I I had the symptoms from about 30, but uh, I actually think that all along I've had a susceptibility to gluten. Mm. And I I think that the... Dysbiosis and then the autoimmune, because every... Everybody who's got an autoimmune disease has got good dysbiosis or mm. leaky gut. Um, so is that, is that what you, you're thinking, that that's why um, things have progressed for you autoimmune-wise because you've always had this um, gluten intolerance? Yeah, I can only make this this as uh, you know as a broad-based assumption um, from what I've read from my own research. I... I think there's a growing body of evidence to support um, gut health and 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 gut permeability being a huge precursor in a lot of these uh, autoimmune um, and, and many other diseases. I think that uh, there's a lot to be said for gut health. It's a very underestimated um, health factor now. Absolutely, but look. So at I think that you know. I think that you're absolutely right, and I think that it, it has nobody's really. Um, you know, we've not really joined the dots before, but now it it seems to be becoming. I don't know if it's just a circle that I'm moving, but it seems to be becoming more mainstream, um, widely accepted that everything you know starts with gut health, and you need to look after your gut health, just even just to prevent you know getting the common cold as well as you know like an autoimmune disease. So yeah, I think you're absolutely that's right. right there, that's for sure. So when you had the uh, yeah. When you were diagnosed with type one, what was the um, you know the uh, course of action that your doctor um, suggested you should take in terms of managing that? Essentially, it was very standard. Um, I was sent my my GP sent me uh, by referral. Well, I was actually first of all admitted to Fremantle Hospital. Um, and I underwent uh, diabetes education as part of my recovery there. They had their own uh, unit at the time um, with a couple of diabetes educators. I also saw some dietitians, um, and then I was referred to an endocrinologist. But basically, um, it's very standard. There are obviously guidelines that, that uh, each of those health practitioners follow. Um, and again, they're very broad guidelines that uh, are obviously for the greater population. Um, so I started off on an insulin regime, which was, you know, 
in 1998 or 97. That was it, it's not where it's at now. I was taking a mixed insulin, so I a longer slow acting mixed with a fast acting. Mm-hmm. I was told to eat uh, six balanced or, or six sort of smaller meals a day. Um, predominantly carbohydrate based and when I say carbohydrate I mean uh, processed cereals, breads, pastas, rice, um, a lot of a lot of uh, you know starchy food, all that sort of thing. So there I was sent on my way. I, I guess as a 17 year old um, pretty afraid at the time I must admit. Um, and yeah, it was a very, very up and down number of years um, because you would you would eat a large amount of carbohydrate, even twenty grams of carbohydrate in one sitting. I now classify as significant. So just, just you then give, take just to give our listeners a bit of an idea, because um, I know that especially for a lot of us women, we're really good at counting calories, but nobody's really sure about grams of carbohydrate. So. For example, if you, could you give us an idea of what 20 grams of carbs looks like on a plate? Yeah, sure. Well, your average latte is about 15 grams. You probably got, depending on what manufacturer or what uh, where you buy it from, a, a slice of bread could, could probably be around 20 grams. Um, certain uh, larger pieces of fruit, um, yeah, I mean, it would probably be about a palm size, maybe even a potato. That would be uh, roughly the same. So that for me, it's quite a significant amount in one sitting, depending on what source you get it from. Yeah, yeah. So how did you – so you, you, you went along with what the doctor said and you were eating your six small meals of processed carbohydrates. <laughs> can't even get the words out. But uh, so <laughs> yeah. how, how did you feel um, on that? At the time, um, it was normal. Once I adjusted to the the reality that I was a a type 1 diabetic and obviously, you know, I had a very turbulent few years when I was first diagnosed. 17 was a particularly bad time. Um, I, you know, I I guess I I, I kind of progressed into a a denial phase where I still went out with my friends and and did all the wrong things. But, uh, you know, in my early 20s, I started to kind of look at it and think, well, yeah, I I have to manage this thing. But at that time, it it, it appeared to be normal. It was take a large dose of insulin, follow it up with a large amount of carbohydrates, manage the bumpy road after that. And start again. That was that was a daily um, sort of approach for me. And how was, um, it, how was your vision at this point? Had that improved from looking through the shower screen? Well, yeah, it, it had improved from that drastic level of uh, of being in, in hyperglycemia for so long because your 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 eyes actually um, it, the lenses actually fill up with water to flush the excess glucose out. There's uh, there's a number of things that happen, but that was basically the analogy my my endocrinologist gave me. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the swelling in the uh, in in the lens of the eye, um, and and how that would affect your vision. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty rough. I, I, I remember I couldn't read anything. I couldn't see vehicles in front of me. It, it was a uh, yeah, yeah, pretty scary time. It sounds absolutely impossible. 
It really does. So you, mm. you carried on with it and you felt normal. So why did you decide to try a complete flip, you know, version of what the doctor had told you if you were, if you were feeling so normal? Um, essentially what had happened was, I mean, I lived like that for the best part of, I guess, the, the 16 or 17 years to follow. Um, so I lived, you know, on, on what I call uh, the, the carbohydrate regime. I lived that for, for 17 years. I got, you know, in, in my early 20s, I started to to really uh, get into my uh, sort of sports and fitness and, and that was my outlet. That was my my sort of focus, if you like. I became probably obsessed with it because that gave me some freedom. With every, with every workout, um, I was following that with, you know, a good few hours of insulin sensitivity. So there was kind of – it buffered the blow a little bit but it didn't uh, it didn't change things significantly enough. Every day was at least half a dozen hypos. So, wow. you know, it's like anything. You you stress the body, you adapt to the situation, and and that's what I that's the only uh, I guess way I can look at it now is that I'd adapted to that being normal. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, with the question, why did I change? I. I started, you know, moving into my 30s and I was, uh, I took up cycling um, around that time. And I'm, and injecting insulin wasn't working for me. In what way? Because I was having huge, huge hypos while I was riding. You go on a bike, you need at least for, for the level I was training to, to race, I needed to be on my bike for probably about two hours. Um, but in that time frame, you know, if I had an injected insulin, um, there that's that circulates um, around for a good couple of hours. That, that you know, if I take, for example, my basal insulin, which sits in the background, at that time I was taking Lantus. Now that's a twenty-four hour insulin, so effectively that's a twenty-four hour decision I have to make the day before. Um, and I have to factor in my entire net following day based on the dose I've taken before. If I'm too active, I'll have a hypo. If I'm more sedentary, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start going high. So it's a fine balance and it's not an easy balance. Um, and obviously being a cyclist um, at that time on a carbohydrate-based diet, um, I was having to eat more carbohydrates because I was using a lot of energy. So how, many, so, how many hours a week were you spending on your bike, you reckon, Bill? Up to about 15. Right. So um, sometimes 20 or, yeah, it was. It was high-level cardio. Um, I was fairly new to the sport um, and, and, you know, I just – I, I had read about what other people were doing, how much training they were doing. That was what I wanted to do. And and the more I rode, the less insulin I needed to take. Um, it kind of became a bit of an obsession again mm. um, where I, you know, I needed to exercise almost. I wasn't perhaps enjoying it as much as I could, but I needed to because it was my diabetes control. Without it, I okay, wasn't. It makes uh, sense when you, when you put it like that, and, uh, yeah. But how did you come across? How did you come across paleo? Um, well, essentially, I uh, 
I met a girl, uh, one of uh, now the type one diabetics. We generally get together every now and then, and in, in, in our local community, and catch up for dinner and that sort of thing. Um, and I met a girl called Beck, Beck, uh, who works for. She actually works for. She's the CEO at the Telethon Centre. Mm. Um, now, she had uh, she had had diabetes probably you know about the same time frame as I had, but she'd managed hers um, from very early in the piece with a low carbohydrate diet. And obviously, you know, we had similar interests in sport and, and things like that. And she said, well, hey, have you ever thought about a low-carbohydrate diet? And at the time, I kind of thought, no, that you know, that's not going to work because, you know, I've lived 30-odd years of my life based around conventional wisdom that, that you needed, your brain needed carbohydrates to function. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know that was all I knew, but uh, you know Beck was persistent. She uh, she reminded me a couple of times of uh, a couple of books that she's read that were really handy, um, and I think it would have been a good you know year or two later. Now I'd been um, I'd, I'd I'd moved on to using an insulin pump by then, um, and I think I had a week long of of hypos. I had a really bad week, and it was just hypo after hypo everything i ate um it was just a roller coaster that's that's the only way you can describe it and i got you know i got to the end of that week and i said maybe there's uh maybe there must be a different way i don't know why i had that mindset at the time but i was so fed up that i thought there must be a different way so i downloaded the books um from amazon onto my uh, kindle and i read both of them they are um, Steve Finney and Jeff Volek's um, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living mm-hmm. and The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance. So one's a very broad-based uh, general um, lifestyle approach, what you do, what you eat, um, you know, the, the, the whole uh, sort of biomechanics of the body. Very, very good book. Um, and the second one is the performance, so how you adopt that approach and, and, and implement it into your, um, your sporting lifestyle. Um, so, yeah, I, I literally ripped through those books in a few days. And uh, I sat down, I said to my partner, I, I think I'm going to get everything out of the house that's, uh, that's, that's going to tempt me at any stage and I'm going to switch my diet to low carbohydrate. I think I've done enough reading here to, to sort of, you know, I, I read them and I said, how can this be wrong? Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. That was my initial impression. How, how can this scientific argument be incorrect? Despite there's no evidence to really support um, how effective it is over the long term, I couldn't see how that science could be wrong. Um, so I called back. I said, I've read the books. I'm on board. She replied it. <laughs> yeah, she basically said, well, you've read the uh, information. You know what it's about. You know what to do. So, uh, yeah, I made the lifestyle switch and uh, never looked back. So you make it sound easy, right? You're like, read the book, Well, <laughs> the lifestyle switch. But can you t- talk us through that time? Because there is a transition, isn't there, from essentially – being a sugar burner and now becoming a fat burner. So can you talk us through what you changed and, and how, how did it feel right there in the beginning? 
Um, it was probably one of the most uh, difficult things I've done. Uh, you know, I think at the time making the decision is the easy part, but making it stick is more difficult because, uh, yeah, I, I prepared for it in the sense that uh, I waited to the end of the week. The pantry was empty. The fridge was empty. We needed to shop. I got rid of all the other uh, excess uh, stuff that we had on hand. Um, I went out and I bought everything that was uh, that I needed um, for the particular diet. Um, everything was low carb. It was all vegetables. It was very new to me, but uh, you know I knew what I needed to do. Um, but for the three weeks after that, it was very very hard. I mean, I, I'd gone from 350 grams of carbohydrate a day to uh, less than 30. So you went for the full so, ketosis. Yeah, I did. Straight away I thought uh, that was right for me. I'd read the advantages of being in nutritional ketosis. I'd, I'd, um, I'd sort of, you know, spoken to Beck about how it had affected her, how she had um, managed her, her diabetes around it. So. And did your partner come on board as well or did she just carry on with what she was, she was eating? At that time, yeah, no. She was happy to sort of um, let me run with it. She continued on uh, with her diet um, the way it was. Uh, yeah, I, it was just something I had to do for me at the time. I really had to uh, just put my head down and, and get through it at that stage. I knew that there was light at the end of the tunnel, but uh, at the time, yeah, I mean, a week in was very, very hard. In, in what but, way? Can you, uh, describe, you know, can you describe to us like how it was hard? Did you feel any symptoms? Just the cravings. Right. Yeah, the 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 the, the cravings. Um, I mean, physically, psychologically, there's a, there's a huge resistance your your body puts up against, uh, I guess, weaning yourself off a of carbohydrate, which for me shows just how potent it, it is. But, I mean, I, I've never been one to sort of eat things like croissants. I was waking up in the middle of the night dreaming about them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was, there was a, you know, yeah, it, it was, it was, it, it was. You mentioned that pre, um, pre-ketosis, and we'll talk a little bit more about ketosis in a minute, but pre that you were eating 350 grams of carbs a day. Tell us what that would look like in a normal day and then compare that, if you wouldn't mind, Neil, now. So if you could compare what you used to have for breakfast versus mm. what you're having now. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, yeah, my conventional diet, my uh, my my pre-low-carb or my carbohydrate-based diet, it would start off with probably about eight wheat bix a day. Um, that was my breakfast, eight wheat bix some honey on there. <laughs> Um, or some sometimes it was about a whole cup of oats um, porridge I made up. I, I would eat fruit with that, um, and then you know probably three hours later I don't think I'd, I'd be lucky to make it beyond nine nine thirty without being really hungry again. So I'd probably then hit you know a banana or a, and, and a latte, a, a milky latte. Uh, lunch was always rice or pasta or. Or sometimes sandwiches. I think you know, and even even potatoes um, uh, with all the proteins and, and everything else added to that. But I'm trying to explain this as, a, I guess, a carb-based diet because that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then I'd be lucky to make it, you know, probably till about three o'clock again, and I'd be very, very hungry. So, again, that was more snacks, probably crackers or, or fruit again. Um, and then dinner, yeah, was was sort of quite heavy again. That would be, uh, you know, your mashed potato, mashed potatoes, or your um, your rices again, your pastas. Just it was, you know, largely carbohydrate based, moderate amount of protein some vegetables um, well, so with no real structure. No, but that is that is essentially, you know, let's let's be clear here, you weren't eating McDonald's for breakfast, lunch and dinner. You were no. eating, you know, uh, inverted commas, healthy. You were eating fruit and, and cereals and healthy whole grains, you know. Um, you weren't, does it sound like you were binging out on muesli bars or cakes or anything like that, but still. No. You were a healthy, you know, essentially you know what the government would describe yeah what i was recommended yeah yeah which is the the healthy message very much so how very much so how does it look now now that you're a a fat burner oh i can't even tell you how good the food is now it's uh by comparison i'm fasting and i've been fasting yeah 18 hours. Oh, no. Really hungry. <laughs> so this is really good. I might, I might have to just disappear and go and make some breakfast. <laughs> so carry on. By comparison, I can't even look back. I can't even I can't even look at a loaf of bread now and see the appeal. I used to love toast. I used to love peanut butter on toast or banana, peanut butter and honey on toast, for example. Now I um, my breakfast is, is bacon and eggs, avocado, um, fried kale or whatever green vegetables I have in my, my fridge um, or whatever I grow outside. So that's basically my, you know, that's a basic breakfast. I can't go without an avocado. I can't live each day without avocado. I love them so much. Me whereas, too. you know, I, know I didn't like avocado. I know we meant to eat seasonally, but bugger it when it comes to avocados. I'm like, I don't care if they're $6 an avocado, I'm eating one. <laughs> Absolutely. Just uh, the way I the way I justify that is, I think, well, when I go to the uh, supermarket, I'm not buying this, and I'm not buying this, and I'm not buying, you know, biscuits or crackers or all of those things that they do add up. All in the middle aisles of the supermarket, mm. just all of that. Yeah, packaged wheat, wheat, sugar, and dairy, basically, isn't it? That's right. Not got much yeah. When people say a low carbohydrate diet is expensive, I uh, I don't agree because when you take out all of the processed foods, paying four or five dollars for an avocado isn't that much. Um, going to a butcher and, and getting real grass fed meat isn't really that much. And what's the cost? You've elsewhere? got more money to invest in quality. You know, like what's the cost? Um, you put the cost on. You know, yes, you, you might be. Like you say, you're not spending any more than you were when you were eating the carbohydrate-based diet. But if cost mm. is what's holding you back, like where else is the cost? Is the cost for your enjoyment of the food? Is the cost on your health or even your lifespan? You know, it's like doesn't really precisely you, money, does it? Yeah, when you make that conscious decision to buy anything at the supermarket, it doesn't end there. In my opinion. Um, Things have a greater cost than 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 at the the checkout, um, and and the diet I was on prior to low carb would have had a significant greater cost to my life. Um, so whichever way I look at it, 
even the short term, I use about 30 to 40% less insulin a day. Insulin is one of the most expensive drugs um, in the world today. So there's a significant saving there, but I know now that, uh, you know, I've perhaps given myself a lot better chance um, of a longer lifespan avoiding complications so uh, you know the complications related to type 1 diabetes and anyone can look at the statistics um, are very very real they're very scary the statistics are not in our favor on a conventional uh, approach that that was the way i was headed so yeah they, they, i've reduced the cost impact of type 1 diabetes um, in more ways than one um, so yeah now, we talked touched a little bit there, Neil, on um, ketosis, and um, I, I would imagine that everyone with diabetes would understand uh, ketones and what ketosis is, but would you mind just giving us a, a little description of, of what it is compared to um, burning sugar as a fuel? Okay. First of all, I'll outline the difference because with, with diabetes, ketosis um, – can mean a couple of things. When you have an absence of insulin as a type 1 diabetic, um, you're at risk of entering a pathological state called diabetic ketoacidosis. It's potentially fatal. It's a very, very serious and severe condition that we are, as type 1 diabetics, taking insulin to avoid. Um, Nutritional ketosis is very commonly confused with diabetic ketoacidosis. Where I am day-to-day -day is in a state of nutritional ketosis, which is actually a clinical um, condition. So diabetic ketoacidosis is pathological, um, whereas nutritional ketosis is clinical. So it has a benefit there, but I'm only sitting between 0.5 to 3 millimole per litre um, at any given stage. I'm probably day-to-day -day only sitting on one, um, but I'm clearly in nutritional ketosis. So, so how yeah. Does, how, what, does that, how does it feel to, to, to be in a state of nutritional ketosis? Amazing. And, the, and I guess the, uh, the higher that number gets towards two, I don't often go above two unless I uh, push it, you know, to all degree. But uh, between one and two, fantastic. The alertness, um, the energy level, um, you know, just, just all-round well-being. It's a, it really is a really amazing feeling. I don't think there's many diets in the world that you can fast for 24 hours and then go and pick up over a 150-kilo deadlift and feel amazing the next day. <laughs> um, that was my introduction to, to ketosis because I was lifting weights at the time. Um, so I'd read a bit about the fasting and, and that driving ketones up. Um, and, yeah, I, it, remarkable. You know, I'd gone from a diet that I was—I felt like I'd have to eat three bananas to go to the gym. Yeah. Um, to to one where I haven't eaten for a day, and uh, I'm I'm lifting heavier and heavier every every time. So, it, they're amazing. Uh, the stable energy levels—they're un uncomparable to anything else. Yeah, it's absolutely remarkable. So mm. you're going to be cycling 
from Perth to Sydney in a state of nutritional ketosis? I am. That is the goal. Um, that is what I, I strongly believe is, uh, yeah, well, basically uh, the aim is to raise awareness, um, raise awareness not only for diabetes, but uh, I guess put it out there how I live my life, how um, how my approach um, may be effective and, and, and more so is, is suited to, you know, showing that it's, it's not a limitation. Um, there's there's probably no greater extreme way of proving that uh, than riding across Australia. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be in a pretty challenging environment um, for a very long time, um, hours and hours on end. Um, and, and, yeah, with, with a low-carbohydrate approach um, and, 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 and in a state of nutritional ketosis because... I firmly believe it works. For the two years that I've uh, I followed this way of life, now it's uh, it really has made a significant impact. And who are you wanting to raise awareness with? Are you wanting to raise awareness with doctors to you know make them aware of, of another method of dealing with type one diabetes, or are you wanting to actually reach out to to other diabetics like yourself as well? I think as a as a community as a whole, um, you know, healthcare providers are, are one side uh, to my to who I want to raise awareness for. But I guess as a greater community, you know, all the diabetics out there that are, are living perhaps the lifestyle I was living before, um, you know, everyday people, everyday people that, uh, that that perhaps don't know there's something something else out there that, uh, you know, that, that might be helpful for them. Um, I think the advantage of being a type 1 diabetic here is that I can show these results, I can publish these results, I can take continuous glucose monitoring technology with me um, I, you know, I can I can upload photos of, of what my blood glucose control looks like. Um, so there's an advantage there to show people that it actually works. It's amazing. It's, it's so inspirational. But, you know, like I find when I go, like I'm just on a road trip, um, say from where we are down in Albany up to Perth, there's not many places where I can stop on the way and get something to eat. So... Are you taking like a chef with you that's going to whip up amazing low low carb meals for you? <laughs> have, have you thought about that bit? <laughs> um, I'm starting to put that part of it together. Yeah. Um, I will have a support crew, so in that in that respect, I won't be entirely unsupported. Um, I'll have a have a vehicle or maybe two that uh, follow me along. Um, I'd like to, you know, probably keep some uh, food, you know, refrigerated on hand or carry some equipment to cook it. But um, even if I didn't have that, there are foods I can carry that are mobile. Almonds, for example, coconut chips. I can carry oils. Um, yeah, you could even probably carry beef jerky, for example. If I made that myself, I would know what's in it. Um, there, there are a number of foods it's something I'm going to be working on pretty closely um, to make sure I have a plan and I have a worst-case scenario plan because uh, a lot of these roadhouses probably won't cater for what I need. Um, 
but I think I'll, uh, you know, there are a number of mobile foods out there that uh, we can probably look at. And are those the kind so, of things that, that you described there, like the almond meal, uh, sorry, the almond meal, the almonds and the um, jerky, is that the kind of thing that you would tend to reach to for a, for a low-carb snack meal? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't eat a lot of almonds at a time. I probably only eat a few. Um, but, yeah, they are handy snacks. Um, organic peanut butter is a, is a handy snack in moderation. Um, you know, coconut chips, they're very, very handy snacks. So they're very robust. They're not going to, uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to uh, go off while I'm, I'm traveling across. And I think if I was uh, prepared enough, I could even take some very, very underripe avocados and uh, they might be right halfway across. <laughs> you just got to get them on that right day, though, because, you know, normally it's one day, That's too, right. <laughs> one day too far or, or not that, right. That's right. But, uh, but, you know, and, and they, they're great yeah. tips, Neil, for, you know, obviously not many of us are going to be bike riding from Perth to Sydney, but those are great um, snack ideas that you've given there that people can carry around in the console of their car or, you know, if they're going on a long-haul flight or something like that and they're not quite sure if the quality of food that they're going to be offered is is on par with what they would normally choose. So, yeah, so thanks for... Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing. There's a whole stigma around low-carb. Um, there's a whole stigma that it's not... Uh, it's not lifestyle convenient, um, or it's not uh, it's not mobile. It's not a diet on the run, but it certainly can be. Uh, you just have to, you know, look at things from a different angle. I think. Well, it sounds to me that um, you know, on your carbohydrate based um, on your carbohydrate regime, you were really kind of like a bit of a slave to food, weren't you? If you were having to like eat every two to three hours. Um, whereas, you are. Yeah, whereas now, do you find it being in nutritional ketosis that you have more freedom? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's some days if I wake up early and I'm going for an early ride, um, I don't want to inject insulin because if I have insulin floating around um, while I'm on the bike, I'm at risk of hypo. So I might wake up early decide, well, I'm not really that hungry, so I'll skip breakfast. I'll just go out on the bike. So there I am, four-hour ride um, on on nothing at all, haven't eaten for perhaps more than 12 hours or more, um, and I find my energy improves as I go, um, whereas, you know, my, my, my prior lifestyle, there was no way I would be able to do that. Um, you know, I'd I'd wake up starving in the morning and, and I wouldn't be able to function for more than half an hour on the bike without it. And would you have been if if you so, yeah. if you'd have woken up starving and gone for a bike ride, what would have happened on your, on the carbohydrate regime? Um Yeah, I mean I, I, for starters I probably wouldn't have had the energy. Um but it would be a very unpredictable course. I don't know. I, I may I, I may have high glucose, I may have low uh, very unpredictable, whereas uh, low carbohydrate, the, the movement of my blood sugar profile is very subtle. There's a very slow decline and a very slow um, elevation typically. Um, so it, it makes life a lot more predictable. Mm-hmm. It's not 100% predictable and it's definitely not a perfect picture. Type 1 diabetes you know, is a very chronic, um, serious condition, but it, uh, it it dramatically improves it from uh, from where I was before. Yeah, absolutely amazing. 
So if people want to find you and they want to get behind you and, you know, um, help you with your crossing for a cause, how can they find you? Okay. Well, I have a Facebook page specific for the cause called, called uh, Low Carb Cyclists. That'll uh, give you all the, uh, the updates on what I'm doing and, and where I'm at with it all. Um, and I also have a GoFundMe page, um, which I can give the address, uh, which is GoFundMe.com backslash 3JMMRA8 uh, or even Google Crossing for a cause, Neil McLagan, and it will bring it up. You've got links on your Facebook page to your GoFundMe page as well, haven't you, if people wanted to find you? I do, yeah, yeah. I share the regular information. That's right. That's um, and and for anyone looking for any diabetes related low carb, uh, you know my history. Look up uh, my low carbohydrate diabetes experiment, and that will um, give you a bit more background on my life. That's awesome, and really good inspiration, hopefully, for other people in a similar situation to you to just question if there is another another way of managing. Their, their disease. Yeah, and I, and I will say diabetes is, you know, of all descriptions, type 1, type 2, it's a very individual thing. What what works for one um, may have different results for the other, but uh, I know a number of, uh, of type 1 diabetics now that uh, are following a similar lifestyle to me and having similar success, uh, success to me. So, yeah, it, it really has uh, been a game changer. Great to hear. And, you know, for anyone else out there with perhaps a, you know, a, a relative or, or a loved one that does have type 1 diabetes, it's definitely um, worth recommending listening to this podcast just to, you know, everybody needs to have that first person like you had your Beck who said to you, have you thought about this? Otherwise, you know, how would we ever know that there was another way other than what the doctors tell us, you know? That's right, yeah, uh, and I think that, uh, that that's one of these things in life that um, you know that there often is another way. If we if we just take the advice we're given firsthand, you never you never really know, um, you know, whether there, there there might be a different way that that uh, that suits your lifestyle better. But um, it, it definitely was a different way for me, you know. After uh, seventeen years of having lived how I'd lived. Um, it, it was a remarkable change. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak to us today, Neil. Um, I wish you all Oh, it was a pleasure. I wish you all the best. No doubt we'll be in touch anyway um, for between yeah. now and next March um, when you start your, your journey. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to wish you all the best, and I'll do as much as I can to support you and to get to get you to the to the amount that you're hoping to raise so thanks for your time today neil thank you very much i appreciate that this has been a production of the check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash the wellness couch subscribe to each show on itunes and check us out on twitter the wellness couch streaming wellness into your lives Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.